Amen. Well, thank you, Greg and Jake and Jasmine and worship team as well. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. It's good to see you here this morning. Thank you for joining us here. And if you're watching online, thank you for watching online this morning. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about a local business I visited here recently, but I'm going to protect the name of the business for reasons that will become evident in a few minutes. So I, I want you to pretend for a minute that I needed to go to a local business to buy a table like this, okay? Um, I didn't, but anyway, we're going to keep it anonymous. So I, I needed to buy a table, and I went into a local business, um, and... What I did first is I called in to make sure that they had what I needed, and indeed they did. And so I walk into this local business, and um, as I opened the door, just about 10 feet in from the front door, there was a counter in which people were being served, okay? And the owner was actually serving the people who were right there. But as soon as I opened the door, I immediately was taken aback because the gentleman who was being served at the counter wasn't wearing a shirt, <clears throat> And I can't remember the last time I saw that in a local business, right? And he had tats everywhere, which is fine, but fully tattooed, man about 60 years old, um, without a shirt on, being served by the owner of the business. And the two employees of the business were standing behind the owner. And I had talked to them on the phone, and they were not all that helpful. The questions I asked, they had to refer me to the owner, to which point, as I stood there longer in the business, I wondered why are they here exactly? Because they seem to be kind of holding the floor down is kind of what their job seems to be. But nonetheless, that she gets done working with this other gentleman who was in to buy a table as well, if you will. And, uh, you know, when he's done, he goes out. But before he leaves, he kind of turns back and leans over the counter and gives her a kiss on the lips. To which I was standing there a little stunned. Like we have a topless man who just gave a kiss to the owner of the table company. So I walk up to do my business of buying the table that I wanted in this place, and as we're interacting with the owner, I can't help myself in that moment, okay? I'm going to have to say I couldn't help myself. So it, when the moment settled, and I was there for a couple of minutes, and at the right time, I said, just to be clear, not everybody has to kiss the owner, right? <laughs> to which she said, um, no, 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 that was just my cousin. That didn't help anything <laughs> at all, at all. Now, the, the truth is I had a good experience. I got what I needed, and I would go there again. But it was weird. That was really, really weird. And as I think about this table business, I think about this. I think there was a time in her past when she decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a table business. Like, I think I would be good at doing that. But I don't think that what she decided was, I also want to associate a culture with this where the people who walk in will feel like this is a really weird place because they kiss cousins in this place, <laughs> right? But yet, the two employees who were standing behind her were not bothered one bit by the fact that we have kissing cousins in the table store at all. See, you know this. You know that what ultimately happens for all of us, if you're a business owner or if you're just in your own life or even within church, that ultimately over time, culture becomes a part of the experience that a customer has in your business. But you don't sit down and begin to think, I want to create a table business that has this particular culture. Sometimes the culture just comes by default if we're thoughtless about it. 
So I honestly, I'm going to think twice about whether I go back to the same table company, not because I didn't get a good table, but because it's weird to be in that space. And it feels off to me. But it had nothing to do with their ability to deliver their product. It just was what was associated with and the culture around that product. If you have been in the church for any amount of time, you will know this, that Christianity is thousands of years old. And over time, culture rolls into our experience with Christ. That the church, just like any business, just like any family, just like any of us, the church has the tendency over the years to add things to the very core of what Christianity actually is. You see, if I were to go back to this table company, there would be an origin story behind why she started the table business that she has. There'd be an origin story. I could hear from her, hey, when I was 15, maybe my dad said I would be good at doing this, or you know, I was 29 working here, and they said, you can go off and do your own table business, and she went off and did her own. There'd be an origin story, but none of it, none of it would include, we want to create a culture in which it's a little weird for some of the people who walk in the door. The same for Christianity. As Christianity rolls year after year after year after year after year, there comes a culture that just kind of comes in on it. And it is important for any business, for any church, to come back to the origin story to find out, wait a minute, before we add on too many things, before we add on all of these extra pieces to Christianity, do I remember how this all began? Do I remember how, what it was like early on? Do I remember the origin story. And what I want to talk about this morning is the origin story, the earliest and best version of Christianity. Because for all of us, these extra things can just get added on, and it creates sometimes a weird experience for people. What I want to argue for this morning, and then we're going to look into a letter that Paul wrote, and we can, you can see if you think this is right or not. And what I want to argue for is this, that really Christianity's origin story centers on the grace of Christ and care for the poor. The Christianity's origin story, if you were to come down to how did the Christian movement begin and what did it look like in its earliest iteration, that it's centered on the grace of Christ for belief and the community was marked by care for the poor in its earliest origins. Now, since then, we've added a lot. We've added denominations. We've added organizations. We've added trends, movements, schisms, or breaks. We've added all kinds of culture and feel and stuff to that. But if we come back to the earliest and best versions of Christianity, the origin story, it centers deeply on the grace of Christ for salvation alone. And then a community that from the jump served the poor with regularity. I want to take you to one of the earliest versions of this story that we can find, and it's written by a man named Paul, who was an early follower of Jesus. He wrote a letter to the church in Galatia, which we find in our New Testament now. Galatians chapter 2 is where I want to take you to this morning. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the chair near you. It's our gift to you, by the way, to take with you. But Galatians 2, it's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. And uh, we've been in this for a couple of weeks. This is part three of this series. And we're just going to cover the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to pick up this story where Paul is writing uh, to the early church. And again, the early church is being criticized for being, they're criticizing Paul 
they're, they're dealing with critics on the outside who want the early church to be more legalistic, more rule-driven, more, more Jewish in their origins. And Paul wrestles with that with them. And so let's read the first couple of verses. I'm going to read a few verses, comment, read a few, and comment here this morning. Beginning at chapter 1, verse 2, Paul puts it this way. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Let me pause and explain this for a minute. Just for some background, there's an early group of Christians who were trying to figure out how to do the church. They were being pressed on by Jews who were saying, Paul's message to you is wrong. It isn't correct. Paul didn't even see Jesus. He didn't walk with him. It's wrong. He's not offering a full perspective. You need to know that you need to incorporate some of Jewish background into your, into your new expression. And so what Paul is writing here, he's telling his story. What he's saying is to the church, to the church who's feeling this pressure from the outside church, he said, listen, after 14 years, I was preaching the gospel for 14 years. I was talking about the grace of Christ for 14 years. And I decided, based on a revelation from God, that I would go see what I'm today, and I'm going to call the big three, Peter, James, and John, or we're going to see in his writing, Cephas, James, and John. He decided, I need to go and make sure from the big three, Peter, James, and John, who did walk with Jesus, who have Jewish background, that the message that I was preaching for 14 years wasn't veering off track. Like, I needed to make sure that I hadn't run and am not running my race in vain. That I didn't allow culture and pressure and all this to come in and change the origin story. I needed to make sure that I wasn't wasting my time or sending the wrong message. And so I went to them, and he had 14 years of experience to talk to them about. At which point then, he also decided to do something very important. You'll see here at the beginning of the end of verse 1, he said, I took Titus along also. That's a very important little detail. Very important, actually. Because Titus is a Greek name, not a Jewish name. And Titus is a Greek Gentile convert to Christianity. And so here's Titus, who Paul takes with him, who's going to go see these early Jewish background Christian leaders, Peter, James, and John, and what's going to happen in this moment? See, Titus didn't have the background that Jews have. Titus doesn't relate to God by memorizing the Torah, by celebrating certain feasts, by having any special markings of being Jewish. In fact, he relates only to God through Christ, through by grace, through faith in Christ. That's all that Titus has known. And so here comes Titus with Paul into this space where Peter, James, and John are hearing Paul say, here's the message that I preached about Christ for 14 years. And so that makes what happens next very, very important. You see, in the Jewish mind, and I don't know if I can emphasize this enough, in the Jewish mind, you can't relate to God well unless you are circumcised. Now, I know that sounds a little strange, but it's almost like, I don't know what you grew up with, right? What your, what your family taught you or what your family acted on. Like, you may have said in your family, you know, 
be careful of those people who dress like this or wear this or say these bad words or watch those movies. Be careful of those who don't go to church. Be careful of those who sleep around. Be careful of whatever. And you would assume within your family, it would be like, well, they don't relate to God well, but you do. Like in, in the Jewish world, there's no way to have a good relationship with God as a male if you are not circumcised. Like it just, it's impossible because that was the mark of the Abrahamic covenant excuse me, the Mosaic Covenant. That was the way that the Jews for millennia had related to God, was through circumcision. So this is a fundamental way of relating to God. Titus isn't circumcised. And so how is it that an uncircumcised male can now all of a sudden relate well to God, or can he? So this is so important what happens next, verse 3. It's almost a throwaway verse, but I want to pause on it for a minute because it's so important because Paul is saying to this early church, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. See, it doesn't get much bigger than this for me in the early church. What, What Peter, James, and John, the early They were disciples of Jesus. They walked with him. And they said to to Paul, who'd been preaching for 14 years, and to Titus, you don't need need to be be circumcised. All of the ways, the primary way in which we used to relate to God, you don't need to do anymore. In fact, the only thing you need to do, Titus, is by grace, through faith, believe in Jesus Christ. There was was not this this add-on. And I don't know how... I don't know how easily to relate that to us because it's so deep for the Jews and it's so deep for Titus and for Paul. But this is fundamentally for Paul a moment where he's trying to give this defense to the early church saying, guys, you, I want you to know that the origin story of Christianity is around the grace of Christ and not around these add-ons that often come in. As I think about my own experience, I don't know about yours, but let me, th- let me pause on what Titus did not feel compelled to do. Do you have history where you have felt compelled to change your behavior, to look more Christian? Do you feel compelled? Have you felt compelled as a young lady growing up to make sure that you dress Christian? whatever that means exactly. Have you felt compelled that you might be a better Christian, maybe relate to God better if you consume only some things and don't consume other things? Do you feel compelled to do things that are kind of on the periphery of what it means to be Christian? You know, I um, do a lot of bike riding. Many of you know that. And I have the chance to ride around Lancaster County quite a bit. And I'll tell you this. um, Many of you know this. This church has uh, strong and long Mennonite roots. Um, 1735 is when this church began. Okay. When I ride my bike through Lancaster County and I go over the crest of a hill and I see a building in the distance that is red brick and kind of looks like a big rectangle, what do I think it is? A Mennonite church. Absolutely. Because the architecture of Mennonite churches, almost all of them, almost all, not all, not all, almost all, many, in Lancaster County, are very similar, representing values of a Mennonite culture, which are not bad, I'm not being critical of, I'm just aware of, strong, stability, 
not flashy, we're going to last, hard work, not drawing attention to ourselves, red brick rectangle. For those who grow up in that space, I've heard it over and over again, and you may have heard it too, when they go to a church that is very different, not a rectangle, not red brick, lights might be down in worship, might almost seem like a rock concert, it feels distracting, I can't do this, too loud, they're drawing attention to themselves, not to God. I can't engage it. Why? Is it because of Christ and the gospel? No, it's because of preferences that I'm not being critical of, but that have been shaped over the years, that culture comes in and shapes and changes. How we even talk about who is Christian and who is not. And we can begin to push that even further in as we talk not just about what we're compelled to in our behavior, but what we believe in our faith. And I want to introduce this carefully, so please give me grace here and let me talk through this to the best that I can. I will likely stumble through it. A couple weeks ago, I had the chance to talk with a college student who was honestly wrestling with this question. They're wrestling with the question of, can you be a Christian and believe that abortion can be okay in certain situations? Can you be a Christian and vote, in her case, she was saying, can you be a Christian and vote pro-choice? It's a good question to wrestle with, isn't it? Now, what would Paul say about this? Because for many who have grown up in a conservative world, that value holds and comes so deep into your heart and into our heart that it feels like that is one and the same with being a Christian. In fact, it's almost like circumcision. It holds so close, it's an identity thing, like how can you relate to God and not be circumcised? There's no way. How can you relate to God and not believe in this, in this way? To which Paul takes an uncircumcised Gentile to Peter, James, and John, and what they're affirming to him is you don't need to feel compelled to add something on to the message of the grace of Christ. And he doesn't feel compelled. And so when she's wrestling with this question of can you be a Christian and vote pro-choice, the answer to her question, the only answer to the question, I think, is yes, you certainly can be a Christian and vote this way, absolutely. Why? Because Christianity isn't about an add-on of faith beliefs on top of the grace of Christ. Give me a minute before you get too uncomfortable or email me. Because Christianity at the core isn't about faith in Christ and a list of doctrinal beliefs that I sign on to. Faith in Christ and a list of things that I'm compelled to behave like. Faith in Christ and an add-on of what I should look like or how I should act. What Paul is fighting for is an origin story that is centered around the grace of Christ without any of the additional add-ons. Now, my ethical orbit centers around value of human life. Okay? And I think that comes from a creator God who has made life from the womb to the tomb, if you will. Okay? And so, yes, I value life and the value and dignity of it, but I recognize it is a secondary value. It doesn't define me as a Christian. In fact, I can be a Christian and argue for a different view. In fact, if I say that otherwise, then I'm adding something else on to the gospel. And if this whole conversation makes you uncomfortable or shift in your seat a little bit, I get it. It makes me do that too. 
And it also made the early church do that too because they were incredibly uncomfortable. They shifted a lot in their seats because they felt the slippery slope was coming. If, well, what if you give that up? Is it going to be this way? And what if you move over here? Is that going to be it? And so what they attempted to do is exactly what happens next in the text in verse 4. Paul writes it this way. He said, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What's he saying there? He's saying some people were getting nervous. They were getting anxious. They didn't want to give up their community and culture the way it had been formed for years upon years upon years upon years. And so what they were wanting to do, they came in and they spied on, they were watching, they were looking at the freedom that you seem to have. And what they wanted to do was make you a slave. That's the Paul's words. Wanted to make you a slave again. This is how, friends, this is how you should dress. This is how you should walk. This is what you should drive. This is how you should handle this special day. You, here's, here's the list of rules for things you should do on Sundays. Here's a list of rules for things to do on Saturdays. Here's a list of rules for what you can listen to. Here's a list of rules for what Christians believe, because all Christians believe this way, and all Christians would do this. And we begin to add on and add on and add on and add on not just to behavior, but also to fundamental belief. And it begins to get murky about what actually is the origin story of Christianity. What does it boil down to that Christians need to believe in that space is what Paul was fighting for. And he said, these people are coming in to try to make you a slave. And slavery, by the way, believe it or not, is very enticing. And here's why. <laughs> slavery gives clarity, not ambiguity. Slavery, slavery makes it simple for you to know what to do. No, oh, it's a list of rules. Cool, now I know how I should function. Now I know who's gonna like me and dislike me. Now I know who's in and who's out. This makes all the tension resolved. That's great. Except you know and I know slavery kills. Slavery promises a false master. That master promises to give life, but actually takes life. Produces death of your soul, of life. So Paul goes on. He says in verse six, as for those who are held in high esteem, meaning Peter, James, and John, whatever they were, he's saying makes no difference to me, as if he's not honoring their, he doesn't really necessarily care about their human authority. He said, God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to my message was his point. He said, they didn't add anything. They, they took my message of the gospel I've been preaching for 14 years, and they didn't change it. Verse 7, on the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. And they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews or to the circumcised. 
So the end result of this meeting, and at this point the meeting kind of finishes up, it seems like they, Peter, James, and John say, Paul, thank you for sharing with us. That's great. Keep sharing that message. It is about the grace of Christ. It isn't about all these add-ons. There's going to be social pressure. People are going to not be used to this at all. It's going to rock a lot of people's boats. People are going to respond offensively to this. You're going to get yelled at. People aren't going to like you. Some are going to leave. Some are going to come. It is going to be disruptive, but the foundation origin story is the gospel of grace of Christ that is what we need to fight for as Christians. That's what it means to be a Christian. People can relate to God directly through faith in Christ, not a bunch of add-ons. Thank you for coming, and here we go. And it's almost like Paul is going out the door, and it's almost like they say, oh, and one more thing, one more thing. Verse 10, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I had been eager to do all along. What an interesting verse. Like, what? Why add this to the earliest expression of the Christian faith? Why, why, why add this here? Like, I thought we were just talking about what we believe, and, and now you're saying, hold on, before you go out the door, just don't forget the poor. The very thing that he said I've been eager to do all along. And as I was trying to process, why is this here? Why is this particular quality of the early Christian community here? Because it shows up here and over and over and over again, not only in the New Testament church, but in the early church, in the 100s and 200s, this church, in the 300s, this church became known as the church that served those who others simply wouldn't serve. And you know, because you know the, the story of so many of our hospitals and even our educational institutions, many, not all, many, trace their roots down to Christian influence or Christian leaders who looked around in the communities and said, the most marginalized need medical help. They need educational help. Much of that, not all of it, much of that was influenced by the early Christian community that said, we want to emphasize care for the poor. And I ask, why is that? Just to be nice? You know, why is that? And here's what I think. I think that grace, when you and I understand grace, grace demands this. Grace realizes this, that, that I functionally am poor before God. That my relationship to God is I am not bringing him a value in my reputation. My faithfulness isn't a value to him. My background isn't a value to him. My education isn't a value to him. My strength isn't a value to him. I am not coming as wealthy before God, and he's not taking my deposit and giving me something that I have bought in return that functionally grace is God looking at my inadequacies, looking at where I fail, looking at my, if you will, poverty of resources and saying, I fully accept you in that space where you are. That's the only way this thing is ever going to work anyway. And I love you as you are. And so, friends, may the early church care for the poor in the same way that we always remember we have been and are functionally poor before God and the grace and mercy poured out to us invites us to a relationship with a God the Father who says, yes, you're poor. Sure, welcome to my family. But please don't ever forget to care for the poor around you is an extension of the grace that you have felt. And here's what I have felt, and I think what you have felt too over the years if you've been around the church long enough. The more you lean on law, the less you care about the poor. Because those people, if only they would budget better, if only they would get rid of cable TV, if only they would stop smoking, if only they would follow my rules, 
they wouldn't be where they are. I am here because I follow the rules. They're there because they're not. And that's not grace, that's law. The origin story of Christianity is the grace of Christ with a community that cares for the poor. So I have three questions for you this morning as we wrap it up. I just want to encourage you to think about one of them. Pick one that might hit you, and we're going to go from there. Just as a reminder, the origin story, I believe, of Christianity centers on the grace of Christ and care for the poor. Three questions. Number one, have I, have I added anything to Christianity's origin story? As you think about your expression of faith, am I adding anything to Christianity's origin story? Am I adding any requirements? Am I, and you can think about this in terms of how you even judge or critique people silently in your own heart and mind. Like, am I critiquing these people who vote this way, who dress this way, who go to that church, who do this thing, who don't, who do, who blah, blah, blah? Am I adding anything? And it, what does that tell you about what you have added to what you expect from other people? Am I adding anything to the grace of Christ care for the poor? Am I adding anything to this? Second question is this. Based on how I live, what are people around me compelled to? Based on how I live, what are people around me compelled to? If you could look at the people who follow you around, your children, your coworkers, your friends, as your, your people are hanging out with you, what are they most compelled to? Because you'll tell stories, you'll laugh at stuff. I do too, goodness. People around me are compelled to act in certain ways, and around you they're compelled to act in certain ways as well. And the question becomes, do they feel compelled, and do I live with people well enough that what they're compelled to is the grace of Christ? But they're not compelled, like Titus, to a kind of circumcision where something else must come before they can relate well to God. And the third and final question is this. How am I? How am I serving the poor? How am I serving the poor? Really simple. How am I engaged? How am I serving the poor around me? Now here's what I know. <laughs> that it doesn't take much to add to the grace of Christ. It doesn't take much to add culture on top of stuff. It doesn't take much for a table company to have an origin story of just wanting to build great tables and sell great tables to all of a sudden you walk in and there's a, a topless man kissing the owner. Really weird. Really weird. But you know who didn't think it was weird? The two employees who were standing behind her because they got used to it. And what became offensive to me if you will, in the light term. What became offensive to me wasn't the table that she had to sell, but was the culture of what was created in that room. And friends, what should be offensive for the church is the grace of Christ, not the culture around what we bring with it. And this is an incredibly difficult space because we all will add on expectations to how we relate to one another and Paul is going to fight for the origin story that friends at the heart of it we are people who are dependent upon the grace of Christ in our spiritual poverty and may we care for the poor as an expression of our faith in the grace of Christ alone I don't want kissing cousins that's too weird and I know you don't either. Guys, thanks for being here this morning. Let me pray for us. Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time to be here this morning, and I pray that you would continue to help us as we fight for the origin story of Christianity. 
in our own lives. As we fight for really what is the basis of our own faith, and if we're here this morning trying to figure out faith and how we relate to God, boy, what a great conversation to have. But what it really means to relate to God, to know Him, to engage Him on the basis of grace, what a freeing concept. And I pray that you would help us to be free from all of which binds us, from all of the law and the works that our hearts bend toward. I pray that you would help us like Peter, James, and John when they engage with Titus. Where he didn't leave feeling compelled to do anything more. He left feeling embraced by people who had law in their background because of the grace of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that as a church, we will continue to step toward defending the grace of Christ and expressing the care and love of this church in tangible ways and care for the poor, the marginalized, the disenfranchised in our communities. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for the time we could share this morning. In Jesus' name.